1: Hello, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Siobhan Barco, the host of New Books in Law. Today, we'll be discussing Making Money, Coin, Currency, and the Coming of Capitalism by Christine A. Disson, Leo Gottlieb, Professor of Law at Harvard Law School. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Could you begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself, your background, and how you became attracted to studying the intersections of law and monetary systems?
0: Yes, I uh, have always been interested in critical approaches to law, that is, approaches that teach us about how layered law is and how, in some ways, open-ended it is, because it, they seem, those approaches seem to me to invite us to think about all the many different possibilities um, that legal systems can create, right, all the different ways that people can organize their lives. So um so I've always been using critical methodologies. I was very interested in legal theory and in critical legal studies when I was in law school um, and have employed those approaches in my work. And that I think that orientation is very compatible with using legal history because history becomes a comparative lens on the present. So by studying something in another time, I feel that we can open up and sort of see in new ways the institutions that we have at the present time. So those things were, um, I think those things, both critical a critical orientation and an interest in history located me as a legal historian. And as a legal historian, I have always been particularly interested in the big dominant assumptions and institutions of our society. So the market was the, is, you know, the, probably the, the, the institution that seems to me most intractable and most naturalized. And so I had been working for a long time actually teaching constitutional history, just a standard course about the early constitutional era in the uh, early colonies and then the republic and early constitutional period, so like 1620 to 1820. And uh, And as I taught it, I was always trying to think of ways to teach or to understand and explore the market, but it seemed a bit outside of law, right? So instead of teaching about the market directly, I would be teaching about the rise of the legislatures or um, the growth of the judiciary, immigration, all sorts of things that we think of as, in some ways, more classic legal issues, but I couldn't really get at the market. And then I noticed... um, I noticed a big debate in the early Republic about um, how the uh american how the government should pay back uh the revolutionary war debt and as as I was reading that debate, I realized they were debating the very nature of money, and the farther I followed that trail, the more it led me to a way to um, to explore and unpack the market because what happens, what money makes possible in exchange creates the kind of commodities that we, that we transact, you know, for which we trade and um, define transactions themselves. So I was really looking for a way to get at the market and to understand it as an institution as opposed to a natural kind of, a naturally occurring event. Um, and money, and I realized after a while by just immersing myself in the sources that money was going to be the path for me to understand the market as a, legal, as a legal process.
1: Okay. And would you tell us how you came to write your current work on that topic?
0: Yeah, so it's very closely related. So I, as, um, as I was just saying, I, got, I was interested in early America. The farther I followed the money trail in early America, the more interesting it got. And it turns out that just uh fortuitously, the Americans, fortuitously for me, the, the early Americans had a very weird monetary system. And that monetary system, they had created, they constructed their own form of paper money. And the reason they constructed it is they were, um, as colonies, prohibited from either having banks or from, you know, the, the mercantile system meant that they couldn't keep silver and gold um easily. Within their provinces, because it was the system was set up to send back profits to England, and the balance of trade worked against them. So, anyway, long story short, they had a very idiosyncratic monetary system, and I was trying to understand that monetary system, and I became more and more convinced that I couldn't figure it out without understanding its baseline, which was the English, um, their English heritage. Um, monetary heritage, so I was it was as if I was following a genealogy backwards. I was just trying to figure out what I needed to know for the American story, and basically the English story, which became the book, took over, completely took me over. It became a detective story of its own that I really couldn't put down, and so I just got sucked into going backwards <laughs> in time to figure out the backdrop for the American history.
1: Okay, great. So um, could you tell us now how your assertion that money is a mode of governance in a material world, how does this undermine claims in economics about money's neutrality?
0: So maybe uh, maybe the way to explain that is actually to, to explain first these different approaches to money's origins that... Um, that exist in the literature? Sure. So can I? Yeah, yeah. So why don't I do that and then kind of use that and jump off that springboard and then go back to the question about money's neutrality. So they're basically, um, there's basically one very dominant way of understanding how money came about and it's a very familiar story that when I tell, I bet you will be nodding, right? And it goes like this. It's something like this. In primitive world, people trade all sorts of things between themselves. It's a kind of broth of barter, in which people are trading, you know, goats for pigs, pigs for um, wheat, wheat for silver, silver for soap, whatever. Um, And after a while, they begin to trade. They realize that, you know, it's very hard to make these trades because barter is inconvenient. You have to have what other people want at the moment that they want it. Otherwise, there won't be a natural pairing, and it gets awkward. You have to arrange these triangles of trade in order to, you know... My pig for your goats, and then then I get your goats, which is what the guy who I wanted soap from really wanted in the first place. So in order to avoid those kind of inconveniences, people um, gradually settle on something like silver that everyone is happy to give and take, and um, and gradually money comes about because everyone starts to use this one common thing as the currency, and eventually the government gets involved, if you know, when there is a government, um, and starts standardizing the silver into particular amounts so that's the standard idea of money and if you think about that and back to your neutrality question if you think about that story money is just an object that people pass around and in more modern version it's, it's just a convention you know it's a unit of measure that we all just share and we've arrived upon the way we kind of arrive upon language you know we We've just converged on using these particular things for convenience, and then they become the measure of all value, and if that's the way money comes about, then money should be pretty neutral. We're all just using something that's commensurable in order to make heterogeneous things commensurable. The problem with the story is that there are many problems with the story, Um, one of which, to start with legal history, is that there's no evidence that the world ever looked like that or that money came about that way, so we can't... We just have no evidence that that's what happened. And if you think about the story a little further, you can see why there wouldn't be any evidence for that, because the story, in a way, is a circular story. There's a catch-22 kind of built into it. So on the one hand, money is the thing that is supposed to make trade easy, right? make trade possible. At the same time, money comes about through trade, right? So there's this kind of catch-22, which came first. I mean, there has to be enough trade to generate the money, which then is supposed to make the trade easier. So there's this inconsistency at the very root of the story. If you think about a primitive society, in fact, you know, it's very unlikely that people will have something that they can set aside, take out of daily use, um, and use as a money. It certainly wouldn't be silver, right? Because silver isn't any good for people to eat. If you're in a subsistence society, it's very unlikely that silver would come about as um, as a money. And yet we see silver and other kind of inedible, <laughs> unusable things get satisfied as money again and again. So, so when I you know, dived in more deeply to the study of money and the theories of money and the history of money, what came together was a very different story, but I think one that, if I tell it, I'm hoping will make more sense to you. So so um, the second story, if you think about the first story, it's just transacting individuals, right? Two pairs of people are making all these exchanges and other pairs of people, gradually everyone settles on one token. But the other thing that's true, and it's true that people act as individuals and in, you know, bargaining pairs in many societies. It's also true in many societies that people organize as collectives and as communities, and that we see those communities as soon as we see, um, you know, uh, human populations themselves. So, so it's much more likely that money, instead of coming about from this kind of convergence of bargaining individuals, came about when groups of people organized themselves. And this story goes something like this: these groups of people organize themselves, and when groups organize themselves, they all make contributions towards their collective um, well-being and the support of their of their group. And that can either be coerced or can be democratic, right? It could be a warlord or it could be a small congenial group. They're all making contributions so that they live together, and you know, do things like are able to defend their small community. In that kind of situation where people are making communi- uh, contributions to um, the center, which I'll just call the stakeholder to avoid the implication that it need be the state, if people are making contributions to central authority or to a stakeholder for the community, um, at the beginning in many societies they're making them in kind. You know, military service, say, every month you have to owe a certain amount of labor to the center. Money seems to come about when... Um, instead of making, uh, when somebody makes an in-kind contribution early, so for example, there's a, a chief, in a, say in a war or a warlord, who is the stakeholder in a certain community, and he organizes because there's some threat to the community, and he takes, um, he drafts a certain number of family representatives to do twice as much service as they would usually do because there's an emergency, in order to recognize their early and additional contribution, he gives them some kind of token. I mean, and the agreement is that they've actually already done uh, the next installment or the next contribution of labor or service or of goods for that matter, you know, contributing goods that they, that would otherwise be due. So that token now holds value as um, it holds the, it represents a certain contribution that's due to the center. And if we imagine a society in which everyone owes a contribution, and let's imagine they're somehow, you know, commensurable or roughly equal or at least accepted as equal contributions. Um, that token holds a value that everyone recognizes now. Um, so so part of what's interesting about money is actually thinking about that step where we have a unit of account, right? We have some unit that actually represents value to everyone, um, and, uh, and that becomes the first money. So people, when they're holding, say, the, the soldiers who, who worked twice the amount they would, ordinarily would do, or the men who were drafted in the time of exigency, have this, this token. And they can either keep it, let's say, and turn it in the next month and not have to work, or if the chief allows it, they can pass it on to someone else and get something in return, like, you know, the GOATs. Um, and that person who receives the token can turn it in as their contribution. So this token, because everyone owes a contribution eventually, insofar as the token exonerates you from your contribution, it has value to everyone. It's as if it's enhanced. You know, it's got it, That value entailed in the token, because everyone owes a contribution or knows someone who owes a contribution, so they know that this thing will hold value to someone with whom they might want to trade. Um, and if you think about money that way, then you you know there's a little more to it so so another kind of interesting aspect of these tokens, which we've now we can see how logically they would come about without any kind of circularity or any catch twenty two as long as we acknowledge that collective action is as likely as you know um, bilateral exchanges then um then we can see how plausibly money would get created the The layer I was going to add is that. Um, this money also has not only value to pay your taxes, but it has value as something that allows, tra- allows trade. So the soldier, for example, who uh, uses it or passes it on, and then the next one who passes it on, those people, there's a kind of cash value to money that is like another layer on top of the value it holds as a tax credit. So you have this token that has value, kind of material value as a tax credit, but also has extra value as the only liquid thing in a society in which there isn't otherwise a easy way to make trades. Um, so when I kind of pulled that story out of the sources, it made sense of the sources. So that's the other account, right? That's the sort of um, the less common kind of non-conventional account of money's origins is this kind of story about the stakeholder and collective organization producing money. And to tie that back to your question about non-neutrality, if you think about that story as the story that is the origin stories of money, what, you've, what you're actually talking about is not an object or an abstract unit that, that won't change the kind of exchange that's made in it, but instead you've got an institution, right? You've got a social relation, if you will, or a legal relation, even more specifically to us as lawyers, you've actually got a legal relation because this object depends on people's obligation to pay the center. It's been taken back as a liability of the center, right? The stakeholder has to recognize and and stick to their agreement to take back this contract. Um, So you can see already that this this token is depending on, and as people change and redesign it, will be changing... Relations in the community. Um, to draw that out one more one more level, if you think about the way the token enters society, it enters the community, and leaves the community, it's not at all um, even-handed. It's not neutral. So the token comes in through certain kinds of expenses that the center that the stakeholder has. So the chief, for example, is paying soldiers, and, and that was actually pretty common in the early Anglo-Saxon world, that these people were the people who were paid the most. So the word salary comes from solidos, which was the um, the word for shilling. Uh, so soldiers are being paid, and so it's soldiers that people need to deal with if they actually want to make transactions for money. So and you can see from the very beginning that the way that a society is organized is influencing the way money enters and therefore the kinds of values that will be put on money because the soldiers and the soldiers' preferences are going to influence um, how money, you know, how people trade and um, what gets valued in money. Then to add, a, I could add another layer which is um, once you're seeing money as this legal relation and you're seeing that the stakeholder has distributed this along certain paths and that people are bargaining for it and, uh, you know, as the money sort of penetrates along these certain channels, um, the stakeholder or later, you know, the, um, a, a public authority will also enforce money of certain, you know, will enforce certain transactions because it's interested in having its money, um, take effect. So, so, um, but say in early England, they might not allow you to make deals for land, uh, they might allow you to make deals for people, right? So there's feudalism, but um, which uh, you know might prevent certain kinds of alienation of land. There might also be slavery, which made people into commodities. So by tracing the way money moved and how it moved, you can see everything from kind of the way prices would get established and how they wouldn't be neutral prices, but would actually depend on how money had entered circulation, to what defined a commodity and what counted the commodity. So you see the whole kind of market getting built By the way, money as a process is being established. So, you know, when you step back and look at that, it's still true today that money enters in certain, according to certain paths and is taken out of, you know, out of circulation according to other devices and that certain things count as commodities and certain don't, certain things don't. Another example, certain things are negotiable and other things aren't. You know, we allow certain kinds of credit and disallow others. So the whole picture, by the time you add up, you know, by the time you look at all the layers of rules about how money enters, what it is, what it's allowed to buy, you know, what's enforced, you get a picture of the market. But it's certainly not a neutral market, right? It's not something that just naturally happened. It's something that's uh, a function of all these decisions and um, relations that come out of um, the creation of money. Okay. It's
1: a really very interesting Mm-hmm. way to look at money's yeah. role in society. Um, could you tell us now uh, what the free minting system is and why legal enforcement was essential to it?
0: Yeah, so having described kind of this, this stakeholder model of money and the chief kind of at the center, um, you can see that money could be made out of anything, really, right? Um, you could use anything for money as long as, you had a way to know which tokens were your tokens and a way to prevent them from being multiplied and, um, you know, that is counterfeited and a way, you know, you were using some kind of token that didn't fall apart or disappear. You know, you couldn't use something that was very fragile or else you'd be paying soldiers and as they traded on, the money would fall apart. So, so what seems to have happened is that, you know, many groups, Decide to use, and you can. And groups might experiment about this, by the way. But you know, using something like silver is actually a great idea um, if you want to make a token that's durable and that's recognizable and that won't be counterfeited easily. So, in it seems that silver coin and other similar things, gold coin, or you know, certain kinds of shells, come about not because. Begin to be used as money, not because they're easy and everyone converged upon them, but actually because they're hard and they're precious and they're rare and they take skills to refine. So the so the early Anglo-Saxon communities start to use mint, you know, have mints that are very early on clearly under the control of their of chiefs of sort of small kings at the beginning. You know, as, as England's becoming more consolidated, and eventually what this system um, develops into is a system called free minting, where each a, where well by the 12th century there's one there's one monarch and so we'll assume that but, so there's a system in which the monarch controls the mints and um, basically taxes in so the at this point the tax they much rather take the tax I think by the 12th century in fact it's safe to say that taxes are pretty much always monetary in England so they're taxing in money instead of in labor instead of giving you the option, right, of working early and then paying in labor or money, they're paying in, um, they're requiring coin and they're paying soldiers in coin. So they've got this kind of, they've got the basic infrastructure set up. Um, but in order to get the, the coin that people want, uh, need to use their, to pay their taxes, um, people go to the Mint with silver and gold in raw form as bullion and they basically buy, coin by, um, by giving over their raw silver or gold, and at this point it was silver, and getting coin back. And you got back less silver in coin, that is to say the government kept some of the silver and gave you back fewer number of coins, but it gave it to you in coins. And so those coins were appropriate to pay your taxes. The government wouldn't take raw silver for your taxes, it would just take coin. So people have the motivation to go to the Mint in order to get money to pay their taxes and the government has set up a system in which it basically um, kind of harnessed people's obligation to pay coin in order to get people to give over their silver and gold and go to the mint and you know get their um, raw material minted into coin. So the thing that the 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 thing that was interesting about free minting, aside from the fact that it was a kind of self um um supporting method of creating coin is that people would go to the mint to get coin to pay their taxes, but if they wanted more coin because coin was convenient, they could also go to the mint with their raw material and get more coin than was necessary to pay their taxes. So in effect what free minting and this is really the merchants, right? So poor you know, ordinary people wouldn't be able to do this, but merchants who were interested in having more coin would actually go to the mint and bring more more raw material because it was more convenient for them to have coin um, even if, even beyond the amount they needed for taxes because they could make transactions in it so so money's coin is entering circulation partly because people needed to pay taxes, but partly what the government 's done is set up a system in which they 're basically selling people money, so they 're selling people coin and people are buying it because it 's more convenient for them than raw silver so the free part of minting the free minting meant Um, free didn't mean that money was free money actually cost people raw silver and an extra amount of raw silver to get but that the government would mint as much as you brought so the free part was that the government would always turn around uh, and give you coin if you brought in raw material so this became the way that the the medieval money systems worked. The government's basically charging for coin, and people are buying it both to pay their taxes, which they need to do, or else the government will confiscate right, their their homestead. But they're also, you know, especially merchants are also bringing in raw material because they because they basically want to buy money for trade. So that's what free minting was. And it depends on legal enforcement kind of all the way down in in all the layers that we talked about before. You know, this is basically running because the sovereign is requiring coin for taxes. But in turn, what happens is that the kings, and here we get very directly to law, the common law courts will only enforce debt. In particular, debt became um, an extremely important common law action and that writ is written in terms of money. It's written in particular, depending on the kind of formulation you used, there's a particular formulation and makes it clear that the default way of valuing everything was in money. So here the king is basically enforcing, has an interest in enforcing its own mode of valuing anything. Um, you couldn't pay your off, off your debt in some other way. So what you see is this kind of system being established and then managed Um, by the center in a way that's creating market exchange. Um, And I could go on, you know, there there are these disputes over exactly how you valued things, if the value of money changed, but the point is, again, that it's um, basically the common law courts as directed by the sovereigns that are um, creating the rules that will provide the infrastructure for exchange, and therefore, you know, because the infrastructure has a certain shape, they're shaping the market. Okay. Um,
1: what were some of the events that destabilized coins' identity? And could you tell us about the late 13th century influx of foreign imitation pennies?
0: So, the, this system that I just described turns out to be really complicated and fragile if you think about it. Because, um, so to go to your destabilization question and then use the imitation pennies is a great story that's just an example of. Of the difficulties of this kind of um, money system at first glance, if you think about a system if you think about coin, it looks very solid and and often when modern when modern people think about coin systems, they think they're very stable, the gold standard, something like that. but in fact they're very fragile, and the reason they're fragile is that um, is it Every penny, all these tokens that are being created at the mint under the free minting system have, in some ways, two kinds of value. They have commodity value as silver pennies, and they also have monetary value. They have value as a tax credit that's especially good because it has more liquidity. So back to what we talked about at the beginning. And the monetary value is actually usually greater than the commodity value, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't take your silver to the mint to get it. to get it. Um changed into coin. The coin value is greater because it's easier to use coin than to use these um, raw silver. So, but if you think about those two kinds of value, all the money that you have has to have the same kind of ratio. That is to say, you know, a penny and a larger coin both have to have kind of the same amount of commodity value relative to the face value or to the monetary value um, for the system to work. Because otherwise, if something's, had less commodity value but more face value, people would only use those kind of coins, right? <laughs> um, Because they're getting more for less amount of silver, as it were. So it turns out that money is a whole ladder of different denominations, and all these denominations had to have the same ratio between their commodity content and their face content. So I don't even have to go into the details. You get the picture, right? That it's very easy for things to, to get off kilter. So... Um, a quick example: wear and tear. so if people uh, are passing around coin, it wears down, there gets to be less silver, say, in pennies than there than there is in bigger denomination coins that don 't get worn as much so um, so people would start to discriminate again you know between different denominations in order to try to hoard the, the silver that had most commodity content because they might want to use the silver for something else, including take it overseas and use it, you know, get it reminted into that country's money. So all of these things, wear and tear, changes in the value of silver and gold, both of which could be used to make money, different denominations, um, competitive uh, maneuvering at the mints of different sovereigns so the French might actually devalue their money a little bit to try to um, you know, secretly have more make more money out of silver, and therefore their pennies might look like they cost less. There are a whole series of a whole series of ways in which money could get off kilter, given the fact that it actually has two kinds of value: a commodity value and a face value. Um, so the, the so sovereigns it's a really complicated, difficult um, management challenge, and and the English kings like the continental sovereigns of of various countries or in various. Um, uh, this political communities are always trying to manage their money it 's a full time job so the 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 case of in the imitation pennies comes about at the end of the thirteenth century and it's um, it's a very funny story about how Edward I is trying to manage his money and for a while because it's hard to it, you know they're, these 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 systems all are very um they 're very low liquidity systems because people are kind of economizing on how much they go to the mint and so Edward allows foreign pennies to circulate. They're called imitation pennies, and they have almost as much silver, or sometimes as much silver as silver pennies. So nobody sees much harm in it, and he says, "Okay, I'll take these, even for taxes." And so everyone starts using them um, interchangeably. But then the, the the sources of the imitation pennies, the Flan- uh, you know, several people are making them in the Flanders and in France. Um, these um, political chiefs. Start putting less silver in the silver pennies, and so people start taking English silver and sending it to the continent. So England, by allowing these imitation pennies, there's just suddenly this flow of silver out of England to the continent. So it sounds it's just an example of how crazy the system was, um, and it gets worse. So Edward, in order to in order to fix this um, problem, he Uh, changes the value of the imitation pennies. Um, In a way, he appreciates them. That is to say, he says every... um, I'm sorry, he depreciates them, right? So he says every imitation penny is now worth only half a penny, and uh, he appreciates the amount of metal in them, right? Because if you think about the fact that they have almost as much metal in them as other pennies, there's now a whole lot of metal in a half penny, that's an imitation penny now worth only a half penny. And this throws the whole nation and the whole country into uproar. So nobody knows what to do. The, people, the sheriffs who had originally accepted a penny for tax, who are collecting the taxes, um, when they turn them into the exchequer, those things are only worth half a penny now. Um, so they're up in arms because they're suddenly caught on the hook of having to collect more pennies. Creditors don 't want to take pennies, even though they have more silver in them because they think that they might be demonetized in the future. Uh, people who are buying things don't want to you know um, still want imitation pennies to be worth a penny, so it caused this big political uproar and um, And so the episode shows us a lot of things, how difficult it is to um, to make money, how carefully. Stakeholders in this case, you know, Edward has to negotiate with uh, with the population to um, to figure out the legal value of imitation pennies. So he has to make some modifications. Once the uproar happens, um, it also shows us the importance of moneyness, right? Because people are actually not accepting imitation pennies, even though there's more silver in them. So it's a great example of the fact that money really is different from silver. So um, so that's the case of the imitation pennies. And it takes, takes several years for Edward to figure out what to do. Um, in the end, he actually has to give the, the sheriff uh, credit for the taxes they've collected as pennies, even though they're now only worth half a penny. So it all gets settled out. But it's a really interesting example of how, how um, hard it is to manage a, a coin money system.
1: Great example. Um, would you tell us now some of the things you've discovered about the lost history of tallies.
0: So this is another great story. They're just just full. There are many, many great stories, each of which have some kind of implication that turns out to be very important for the kind of social structure of society. (laughs) But the tallies were... um, Their importance is in many ways, they were an early form of public credit that because they're so odd, people didn't recognize as public credit or lost people have lost sight of the fact that these things circulated as public credit and in fact circulated as money because if you think about what we're saying about money is it's a form of public credit right it's a it's ultimately a tax credit tallies were little wooden sticks that the exchequer um, used at the beginning to give to tax collectors when so the english system worked by farming out the tax responsibility and tax collectors would collect taxes in the you know, all sorts of different regions that were peripheral, say, to London, and then bring them into the exchequer. And when they brought in their taxes in order to get credited um, as having submitted their taxes, the exchequer would take one of these wooden sticks, someone would break it in half and give half to the tax collector and half and keep half at the exchequer. And by fitting the sticks together, it was called the stock and the foil and is probably the root of the word stock as in even stock market and stock as something that we use, that we think of as capital. Um, the 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 exchequer officials and the tax collector would each have a half of this. They'd fit them together, and that would show that the tax collector had paid. And after a while, what happened, so that was a great system, especially in a, in a society that didn't have paper and pencil and easy ways to, and, and may not even have had numerical literacy. After a while, what happened is that public creditors, would come to the exchequer for their payment, and the exchequer may not have yet received the taxes from the tax collector, say, in the field somewhere. And so the exchequer would take one of these tallies, break it in half, give the half to the creditor with a certain amount of tax, with a certain amount of money owed on it, say, uh, 10 shillings, and say to the creditor, go find the tax collector, get the the money from him directly, and give him this half as a receipt they give him the stock, say. I think it's the stock that the tax collector gets. So the creditor would go find the tax collector, get the money, give him half of the tally, and we'd be in the same place as we were before. That is to say, the tax collector would have a receipt showing that he paid over the taxes that were due, and the exchequer would have the other half. But if you think about it, we also have a situation where, in effect, the... Um, the government has gotten a loan from the creditor for the length of time that the creditor is holding the tally. So the government actually didn't have the money in the beginning, and and gave out a piece of an instrument that's actually a legal claim to money. And so it didn't take long within uh, the first few decades of these um, these tallies circulating. By the 14th century, it's clear that the that the English crown is paying out a lot of, is paying an enormous number of public creditors in tallies. And basically, that is to say, it's paying them in these debt instruments and the tallies are going out there. So um, I went through these old institutional histories to look for the, to get a sense of how, how large a percentage of um, money was coming in, uh, was being spent basically by tally at the exchequer, and in some years at its height in the 15th century, something like 60% of the money uh, being spent by the government was going out by way of tally, is going out by way of these instruments. Um, and the way this connects to money, I mean, there are many ways it connects to money, but basically what happened eventually, and quite informally, but with the consent of, of officials, is that these tallies could change hands. So if you if you're a creditor and you don't want to take the time to go find the tax collector, and the tax collector maybe uh, you suspect doesn't have the money yet, which also happened, you might hand on your, ta- your tally to someone else in exchange for, um, for goods. And if you think about that, it's basically acting as money um, because the person who eventually takes these tally could even use it to pay his taxes or her taxes with the tax collector eventually, right, just giving them the tally and paying off the taxes that way. So it's very similar to a kind of money. And it looks like tallies began to um, circulate informally as a kind of money, at least in certain circles, probably elite circles, merchant circles were using these tallies. Um, and we also have the um, English kind of experimenting with public debt and learning how to use public debt. So it's a great story. And, and um, the the hit, the history of tallies is lost in part during the 19th century. There are all these tallies, thousands of tallies in the basement of the Parliament buildings uh, in London, and um, and some wise bureaucrat decides that they should dispose of them and uh, lights them on fire, and they burn down the Houses of Parliament, uh, <laughs> and they, all, they also burn down, they also burn up all the tallies. So so that event in particular helps. Um, Buried the history of tallies, and we're only just now kind of recovering it. All
1: right, uh, another great, maybe more yeah. dramatic example. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, um, so you alluded to this a little bit earlier, but we could maybe go into more detail about why problems of scale follow from coins' availability in disproportionately high-value denominations, and how this shortage of small change impacts exchanges of goods and services.
0: So this is another great story, actually, which I'll just tell briefly. And that is that if you think about silver and its value, when, when um, the crown starts to use silver as a proxy, right, and use it to make these tokens, the tokens are actually fairly high value. Um, it's just technically hard to make low value tokens at, at the beginning, um, or I'm not quite sure how, why they don't debase the tokens earlier in Europe Sovereign start debasing tokens. Um, and in England, they don't. And what turns on that difference? Anyway, we have then a high-value penny, a penny that has a lot of purchasing power. So um, a laborer might get paid in one to two pennies in the 13th century, say. Uh, if you think about that, um, that penny has a lot of purchasing power, but you have very few tokens in which to divide your purchasing power. So to give an example, to make it concrete, um, so you get paid two pennies a day, and a farthing. There's a quarter of a penny, of which there are only a few circulating because mostly they make pennies. Farthings are harder for the mint to make, and they are not as many made. A farthing buys four cups of ale. So a penny would be 16 cups of ale, and you only get two pennies a day. If you compare an American worker who gets paid $100, say, in 1950, whatever, in it, that's 10,000 pennies. So you have much more flexibility in what you can buy with 10,000 pennies. Um So, the English had this very awkward currency that that um bought big packages, and that made it very difficult for people who are making everyday purchases to use and so um uh that meant that people often made deals for credit, so instead of trying to use your penny and take getting sixteen you know, cups of ale, you might every day for several weeks take a cup of ale from someone and say, you know, in two weeks I'm going to pay you a penny. Or whatever, in 16 days I'll pay you a penny. And so we get all this kind of low-level credit going back and forth between people because of the awkwardness of um, of money's denominations. And uh, and money, as I said before, was also fairly scarce, so there's all the more reason for credit. But um, that kind of credit, part of what became most interesting to me is that kind of credit is not so that people can invest, it's so people can live, right? So they can just, it's a consumption credit. It's credit that allows people to get by and make trade with each other and economize on the use of coins. Um, and uh, what became interesting to me is part of that, that, that kind of credit then affects the way people live and their relationships with each other so on the one hand, at first glance, it might look like it 's quite romantic. Everyone makes these reciprocal deals there 's lots of lending back and forth. On the other hand, when tax time comes around or when the harvest is is weak um, and they're failed um, the, the crops fail, people uh, begin to sue each other because they actually need somehow to recover enough money to pay their taxes or to pay someone else. So the litigation rates in fourteenth century England are extremely high and the oppressiveness of this system becomes more and more clear when you look at how hard it is for people on the bottom to use this kind of money. Um, the same problems because they're um, denominational problems don't affect people as much as the top who can say buy in bulk or who are buying, making larger purchases or are hiring servants. Um, those people can get by, but the people on the bottom, the more and more I looked at it, the more and more difficult, um, uh, the more and more difficulties flow from the awkward denominations that exist in money. It was just, it's actually another great example of the question you asked me at the beginning about how how the monetary system would produce non-neutral results. So here's a problem that in some ways is just a technical problem, but it turns out to change, emphatically change the way what kind of exchange gets made and how people are spending and what they're spending on and um, you know, creates all additional a lot of additional costs as they try to enforce the credit or get back their the debts they're owed. So that's the that's the story of um, the the scale problem.
1: Okay. Um, could you tell us about the radical redesign of money that began in the 17th century?
0: Yeah. So I'll wrap this into. I'm um, talking a bit about the Bank of England okay, um, just to kind of make it all come together here. The the, the two two big changes happened in, in the 17th century um, that I'll try to at least flag a little bit. One is that the government starts paying for money instead of charging people for money. And the second is that they share their monopoly over money creation. And these things completely transform the monetary system in ways that I think um, – uh, brought capitalism or that we could surely um, identify with with the system that we've come to think about as capitalism. So as for paying for money, um, all, for centuries in the free minting system, the sovereign was charging people for money. Uh, and then in the 17th century for a reason for, you know, during a particular shortage of currency, Charles II actually begins to pay people for coin. And that seems like a small change, but it, had radical implications. Um, and to, to kind of pass, to, to take another example of paying for money, I'll just talk a bit about the Bank of England. So it was also Charles II who, before the bank, so he's uh, in the 1660s still, he starts paying, um, George Downing, who is minister, has the idea that maybe he should, instead of borrowing from a few large financiers actually borrow from a great majority of people. And these are the first public bonds that they could get a lower interest rate for the government if they had these bonds that could circulate and people could lend small amounts to the government. So along with paying for coin, in a way, Charles starts paying for, um, paying, paying for loans. So they'd already been paying for loans to some extent from big financiers, but not from everyday people. And the idea is quickly taken one step further, and probably these bonds, the habit of paying for bonds, eventually paying for loans, eventually flat out leads to paying for money itself, which they've always charged for, right, if you remember the free minting system. So what happens, this now takes us to the Bank of England, which is in the 1690s. What happens is that the English are in war, they're experimenting many ways to try to supplement the amount of money that the government has, and And they come up with the idea that they could borrow from a group of investors, but instead of taking the loan in silver or gold coin, they'll take they'll allow the investors to hold on to the silver and gold coin, and they'll take notes as promises to pay silver or gold that the investors give the government, and then they'll and they'll take those notes and they'll spend them. The government will spend them paying soldiers and suppliers for the war. And those people can cash them in with the Bank of England. Um, so at first, the system just seems like a temporary interim measure. People are going to hold these, pa- these paper notes until they go cash them in at the Bank of England. But what happens is that the government, and the government is paying the Bank of England for this service, right, this kind of interim service. What happens is that people just start paying the government back when they owe taxes or when they owe other things to the government, they start paying the banknotes back. And the government has no reason not to take the bank notes because it owes the Bank of England. So in effect, what the government's done is create with these investors a whole new loop of money, which is basically tax credit money with these investors. That's a, that's a form of paper money. And it looks like it's based on silver and gold, but no one really needs to cash in for silver or gold coin because they can use it to pay their taxes. So that's the first national... Bank of Issue, and that's actually, um, if you think about the innovation, it's radical because the government's paying for money instead of charging for money. For for one thing, it's expanding the money supply greatly because it's allowing the investors who are holding onto the silver silver coin to keep using silver coin. The people who are the Bank of England only need to keep a little bit of it on reserve, um, and they're also. Um, Another thing that's radical about it is conceptual that is the, the government's now um, validating the self interest of the investors as a patriotic thing right that the, the, in, the desire of investors for interest is actually good for the country because it's producing paper money so um, in the medi- in the medieval era, you know interest was considered a vice it was certainly not something the government rein- would reinforce and here at this moment we have you know, the creation of this group of investors who will now be privileged creditors who are considered patriotic because they're pursuing their own self-interest and are now producing money for the country. And the country in turn, you know, the kind of money that the, that um, these investors are producing, they will now be considered the experts in when to lend to the government and produce more money. So, So this is the moment where we put a national bank which will – in our experience, be known as a central bank, when we put central banks in charge of the money supply. So it's a really um, transformative moment. And that's the kind of, that's the real, um, um, that's the revolution, the monetary revolution that's at the heart of the book.
1: Okay. Um, What were some of the different definitions of money that emerged
0: from this revolution in money? Yeah, that's a great question, because if you think about the revolution, two things are emerging from it. In a way, and they each give rise to um, a definition of money. And there's a big argument in actually, there's still an argument today about what money really is. So on the one hand, you have these banknotes and banknotes that are taken for taxes and that appear to hold their value that way. And a whole set of people argue that in fact money is credit. And um, and there are you know a hundred pamphlets saying money is credit. Um, maybe not quite a hundred, but <laughs> a number that still survive that are saying money is credit, all sorts of variations on this theme. And then there are people who say, wait, money must be the silver reserve, the silver coin reserve. It must not be these banknotes that actually are good for paying your taxes. It must be the silver coin. And Locke is most famously associated with that position. And, and that position becomes important to him as a philosophic matter in a, in a, mo- in a moment when he's trying to resist... Um, He's trying to develop political theories that will actually limit the power of the sovereign and the power of the government more generally. He he seems to be driven by a desire to um, take money outside of political authority and locate it somewhere else. So he says money must be the silver, must be silver itself, and you know he identifies it with the kind of silver that traders, overseas traders, use. If you think about that kind of silver, it's not even coin. It's actually raw silver. So Locke goes really far. I mean, on the one hand, we have these credit theorists who are saying money is all credit. It all depends on um, on a contract, and it could be anything. It can be paper. And on the other hand, Locke is saying it must be silver. It must be outside of political will, and it has nothing to do with what the law says, right? It's it's, it's before political society. In fact, in his writing, he says before political society that people trade with each other. He He's a big proponent of the barter story, the convergence story that we actually started with. So there's this fascinating debate just at the end of the 17th century and throughout the 18th century about what money really is. And in many ways, I think, um, I mean, this becomes one of the themes of the end of the book because uh, in many ways, Locke succeeds in convincing many people that, um, that we have to think of money as silver, even as, and maybe in order to legitimate, Um, bank money. So bank money is becoming more and more common. Meanwhile, the theory that money is just silver outside of political control is also becoming more and more common. And It's as if these two things work together because if you believe money is silver, then maybe that um, enhances the credibility of a bank-based system in which people think they can go get their... think that money is... um, that money's value depends on the silver reserve. So uh, so these things, you know, the debate over what money really is, is linked to the revolution in money's form, but in this kind of ironic way, so that, you know, money becomes, seems to be made very concrete at the very moment when it's more and more transparently uh, a credit form.
1: Okay. So how, during this period, uh, the late 18th century, was the basic structure of modern money
0: erected? So that um, that question just follows straight from what we were talking about um, in a really nice way because the the new this new paper money that we have from the Bank of England Bank of England is the only bank that the government privileges in the way that I was just talking about and so Bank of England notes uh, because you can use them to pay your taxes become interchangeable eventually you know it takes a couple decades but they be- it becomes interchangeable with coin. And for complicated reasons, the English start using gold more than silver. Kind of goes out of circulation because of one of these destabilizing problems that we talked about already. Um, so banknotes and gold coin become the basic money of the English, and commercial banks can then use those can use paper banknotes and gold coin um, as their own reserves, and and they go into operation. They're actually very um, infrequent in the 17th century, and they don't stay in business long because uh, nobody will take their notes, basically, and their notes, and they're very fragile. Um, There's unlimited liability for partners, and there are a lot of reasons why they don't. They're not strongly established in England before this period, but after this period, um, what happens is they begin to use these basic units of account, both the Bank of England's money and the gold money as reserve, and the Bank of England uh, begins to support the banks. So over the 18th and the 19th century, to make a long story short, commercial banks go into operation um, and issue bank notes and eventually issue deposits that are claims to the nation's money supply, and, and they're clearing, setting off obligations that they owe each other and that their depositors owe each other using coin and bank of England notes. So we get this kind of architecture of the central bank, which is the bank of England supporting a set of commercial banks that are multiplying the money supply by themselves holding, you know, holding the bank and the coin reserves and making further, um, representations of money. And, uh, and so, Uh, It's a very interesting system in which you get ultimately a kind of um, pyramid, an inverted pyramid, right? You get more money as you go further out from the center, but the center is is ultimately um, supporting the whole system by, um, by allowing the banks to clear accounts with each other and set off obligations with the basic unit of account.
1: To conclude... I really want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. You're welcome.